obvious. This is going to be so unpredictable. It's not even... that we heard at the start of the show was of course Eddie Kingston and our boy John Moxley as they arrive at Dublin Nothing 2021 and the crowd goes ballistic after nearly 14 months of being starved of crowds and fans and cheers AW finally meets fans again and it was a great moment and there's no better time to revisit that of course and this we're now on the eve of Dublin Nothing weekend 2022 and I thought to myself well it's the anniversary. Let's go back and have a look exactly when fans came back to AW and Mox and Kingston took on the Young Bucks in an absolutely cracking match back in May of last year. And today's guest is coming all the way from one of my favourite podcasts around the internet. He is the host of the awesome music of the mat. He is Andrew Rich of Voices of Wrestling. Andrew, how the hell are you? I'm good, Joey. How are you? Oh, listen, I'm marking out here. I'm a huge fan of your show. If anyone doesn't <laughs> listen to music on the mat, it is just for any sort of fan of music and wrestling, which I personally am. They go through in depth into the teams and previous teams and all sorts of sort of information regarding the music of professional wrestling. And it's just an absolute treat for anyone that doesn't know about the show. How would you describe it? Why choose this particular topic? Well, um, I've always been uh, a big fan of wrestling music and just music in general. And uh, over a little over five years now, actually, I was talking with a friend of mine, Chris Maffei, who just tweeted out this idea one time randomly about, oh, I want to do a, a wrestling music podcast one day. And I worked up the gumption to DM him and said, hey, you know, I'm a big wrestling music fan as well. If you ever want to do it, I would like to do it with you by chance. And uh, we got to talking, and one thing led to another, and uh, you know, the show was born. So there you go. Oh, it's a it's a fantastic show. If one of my favorite episodes, particularly, is the, the WrestleMania teams with with Chris, of course, way back. I think that's one of your sixth or seventh episodes. But you really dissect each and every team and give it a fair and honest kind of critique. Yeah, that was very very early on. I think episode five, maybe somewhere yeah. around then. And right now we've been up to. Um, See, I think we just did 135 episodes so far. Congratulations. Uh, bi-weekly. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's bi-weekly every other week or fortnightly, I guess you might say. So, yeah, it's it's been a very long road for sure. Very uh, time-consuming points with all the editing to do and whatnot. But it's all been worth it for the, the nice, kind words people say like uh, like you just did. So, thank you. <laughs> oh, this, no, no, thank you. It's a pleasure hearing every every two weeks. And, again, this, from topics from course just like individual wrestlers to teamed episodes this is the halloween or the wrestlemania one i just mentioned or of course the music memories which i'm i just love hearing what songs people particularly gravitate to to when they obviously have these wrestling uh past uh, past experiences and it's just a it's just a wonderful show inside out but of course andrew a huge professional wrestling fan i don't really get to hear you talk too much about actually what you love particularly about particular matches and feuds but how did you get into professional wrestling itself well, I, I had known about wrestling as a kid, um, at least the big, big guys like The Rock and, and Steve Austin and Hogan and guys like that. But I didn't start watching it until uh, summer of 03. I was uh, in my bedroom just flipping the channels on the TV, and 
I came across an episode of Monday Night Raw, and uh, the match that was going on was uh, Shawn Michaels versus Chris Jericho in a WrestleMania 19 rematch. And for some reason, I just kind of stuck with it. And funny enough, I've, I've told the story before, but my favorite color is blue. And Jericho was wearing blue tights that night, and Sean was in red. So I naturally just started rooting for the blue guy, uh, even though Sean was the, the face and Jericho was the heel. But as the match went on, I kind of, you know, slowly kind of learned what was going on there, and I started to root for Sean Michaels instead of, of Jericho. And, you know, from there, I just watched the next week, and I watched SmackDown, and it just kind of snowballed into this this crazy thing called wrestling fandom that I've spent way too much time of my life devoted to. <laughs> uh, but uh, but no, it's, it's been a very, very fun fandom. Maddening at times, I think, for sure. But uh, look, given the amount of, of great matches I've seen, great feuds I've seen, I think it's been it's been worth it, I think, in the, in the long run. And when you say it's been worth it, if you could, let's say, pick maybe a match or an angle or a feud that you consider the absolute height of professional wrestling, what would that be? Like, there's so many different angles that I always remember, like, from when I was young and... They're all I always think of, that's what got me into it, but it's the, the big sort of moment matches that really always stuck me and think that's what I consider excellent professional wrestling. Andrew, for you, what is the pinnacle of professional wrestling? And I'm not talking about MJF. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, I'll always cherish, I think, the most, the, uh, the, the, the recent golden age of New Japan of the 2010s with, you know, Okada and Omega and Tanahashi and Naito and all those guys. I mean, the Okada, Omega... Feud uh, is to me just maybe the best matches ever. Uh, I think the Osprey Okada feud as well, Osprey Shingo, Tanahashi Naito. I mean, again, it's it's all these different iterations of, of of guys there, just putting on the best matches I've ever seen in my life over the course of six or seven years, really. Uh, so that as far as in ring goes, and in ring storytelling, I think that's that's kind of the peak, maybe. As far as just like moments, I mean. Obviously, when you're a kid, seeing your favorite wrestlers get one over on the bad guys, that's obviously a big deal. Um, I, I always remember being so excited when uh, Eddie Guerrero won the world title from Brock Lesnar. That was always a pretty big deal to me. And, and it, it's seriously tainted now, I know. But uh, a little later on, of course, Chris Benoit winning the world title at WrestleMania in the main event there, which uh, certainly has, has different, uh, you know, different feelings nowadays about the whole thing. But as a kid at the time, I was just over the moon about it. I don't know if I really captured that same sense of just jubilance until maybe Daniel Bryan won the belt at Mania 30. That was really, like, I think the last time I was just so over the moon about WWE, I think. Uh, it was just it's kind of a kind of all downhill from there. But, um, yeah, I think I think New Japan, that, that recent golden run to me is still, as far as in-ring matches, the, the, the peak for me. No, oh, I love what people obviously go towards when it comes to professional wrestling. And you mentioned guys like Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. These are guys that I think what made it so special is that we never really thought that WWE would ever really give them the ball to run with. They were always the you know the guys that were reaching through that glass ceiling, but never quite reaching it. And when they eventually did, it was magical moments, especially with two in very quick succession back in 2004. But this is a John Moxley podcast, and we obviously try and dissect the career of Dean Ambrose, Jonathan Goods, whatever you want to call him. But at the your first memories of him, were, when were they, and exactly what were your first impressions? Trying, I was trying to think about this. I think I may have heard the name John Moxley. On a couple of, of you know websites back in the day when he was you know, pre WWE, but I think I really got to know him more and more when he was in FCW. I heard a lot of rumblings about him 
as Dean Ambrose with the Regal feud with the Seth Rollins feud back then. I heard a lot of good things about there, and I checked a few matches out, and they were pretty good. But really, I think the Shield was like the true, true start of me being a, a Moxie fan, being an Ambrose fan, because he just he seemed really damn cool. Like he didn't seem like wrestler cool; he seemed real life cool, and that's that's pretty rare in wrestling, I think, uh, especially nowadays where a lot of guys, you know, put on airs and and put on a character to come across as cool. But you know, even back then. I could tell that this guy was like like a legit cool guy in real life instead of just, you know, talking the talk. He he walked the walk as well. So I think it was those those shield days where I really clung on to him and I was like, OK, yes, I see it now. This guy is he's my guy and he'll be my guy going forward. And he still is my guy. So, yeah. Oh, and before we get into today's topic, you did mention New Japan there, and that's a particular place in your heart and professional wrestling fandom. John Moxley was very a very odd occurrence joining uh, New Japan 2019, something that a lot of people probably didn't see at the start of that year. What were your opinions on him joining New Japan, beating Juice Robinson, having that awesome G1 run back then? Well, yeah, I mean, I remember when he left WWE and AEW was, you know, starting to become a thing and they didn't run their first show yet, but... I remember, like, okay, Mox is going to go to AEW. That's kind of a pretty much a, a foregone conclusion, I think, for the most part. But I didn't know at all, I didn't expect at all, that he was going to be the guy with those Death Rider times up, uh, scraping the, the the bar with the knife, you know, those videos. Who, who did you think that was? Because a, a, a lot of people did have a lot of opinions of who it could have possibly been. So, like, if it wasn't going to be Mox, who was, there, who was your first thoughts? First, a lot of people assumed it was going to be Chris Brooks. Mm-hmm. They kind of they're kind of like analyzing like the shoulders and the height or whatever, but that's because it, it wasn't Moxie in the video, I don't think. And I heard I think I heard another one that was like, oh maybe it's like a repackaged Davy Boy Smith Jr., which no thanks I guess <laughs> looking back, but uh, <laughs> um, but I remember like when the video dropped and it's like Mox is times up, but I was like, oh my god, this is this is crazy, this is so cool, and you know you do wonder like okay he's gonna be in New Japan, what's he gonna look like because. We'd seen him in WWE, and he was good in WWE, but you could tell that there is this kind of underlying physicality and underlying violence that's kind of being held back by the WWE style. So you wonder, like, okay, he's going to be in New Japan. The chains are going to be off, presumably. What's that going to look like? And that first match against Deuce Robinson at the Super Juniors Finals, the music hits. You know, he comes out, he's in the, the short the short pants, the, the, the shorts there, the, the jacket comes through the crowd, and you could just feel with the music playing, the Death Rider theme, that, okay, this is the same guy, but a very different guy at the same time. You can just tell that energy, and he wrestled the match, and yeah, sure, he was a different guy. He was just full-on, balls-to-the-wall violence, and he's, you know, carried that. Not just in New Japan, but in AEW as well. So I've I've been very much impressed with Mox um, in his time in New Japan and not feeling out of place either. He doesn't feel like a guy who's just took the WWE style and put it in Japan. No, he's he's adapted to that uh, that style with his own flavor as well. I think. And wouldn't be really doing my job if I didn't ask a team music connoisseur as yourself. What's your opinion of the Death Rider team? Because it's so different from what he was given in WWE or the, the sort of more high energy, high tempo, unscripted violence that he would have in AEW. This is a more of a gunslinger coming into the Alamo kind of team. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love that it has that slower tempo than either of his AEW themes has, uh, unscripted violence or Wild Thing, which he has now. 
again, it, he's the coolest guy in the room. Like he doesn't have to have this crazy high intensity, high speed music. He can just have kind of the slower paced stuff with the, the big crunchy guitars and that kind of more, uh, more even keeled riff. And you can still tell, okay, this guy's a real badass. And he's coming to the ring. He's gonna beat your. He's gonna beat your ass up. So, um, yeah, I love that. I love the opening with the the, the engine starting as well, and the big. It, it's yes, again, an Andrew it's, Rich it's, impression. Yes, <laughs> I'm marking it. My, my karaoke, <laughs> my karaoke skills on on full point there. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I love just the overall vibe of the song and how it, it's it's it helps differentiate Mox his time in New Japan. And his time in AEW, even though ostensibly it's the same guy, you know, it's the same as that character, no difference there, but it does kind of, you know, help kind of set a boundary between, okay, there's Mox in AEW doing his thing there, but he's also doing his thing in New Japan. And the music tells that, that difference right there. Oh, and today's feud we're looking at is, of course, the Young Bucks versus Eddie Kingston and our boy, John Moxley. And this feud, it begins shortly after John Moxley unfortunately loses the AEW world title. He is now aligned with Eddie Kingston. And now the young books are, you know, they're they're kind of conflicted. Will they join the elite? Will they back their buddy Eddie Kenny Omega up or will they do the right thing? But of course, what were your thoughts on this particular feud and the, the build week to week before Double or Nothing 2021? I mean, I was pretty into it, especially, you know, because they were able to salvage, I guess, as best you could, the end of revolution with the uh, <clears throat> explosion uh, in the death match. Like they were able to at least pivot off of that into this Mox and Eddie partnership and have them going after the Bucks, going after the elite of the tag belts, which is a smart thing to do when you have a guy like Mox, who is a main eventer, is a former champion. Okay, we need to get him out of the world title scene and away from Omega, but still have him featured in some way and still have him be part of this feud. Have him team up with Eddie Kingston, another guy who is, you know, a recent main eventer against Moxley at, at Full Gear that, that previous year. Have him team up, make this cool little super team here, have him go against the Bucks for the, for the tag titles, which is something that I think a lot of us have complained about with New Japan for many years, where you have their heavyweight tag titles. A lot of times it's been kind of the same couple of teams every so often, and they'll kind of mix it up every every once in a while, but you know, the tag division has not been always been the most fresh, you should say, you could say. But, like, okay, we can take maybe some main eventers in New Japan who aren't fighting for the world title right now and put them together and you have them go for the tag belts and, and do that stuff, which they did last year with Naito and Sonata for a little bit with, with Techers, but they haven't done too often. But I like how they were able to do that here in AEW with, with Mox and Kingston and going up against the Bucks, which if you're going to go against you know, any tag team for you know, and want a great match, you know, the Bucks are the ones to do it, so... And this particular feud, it really kicks in the gear when the books officially turn. They have this moment to finally give the double V trigger to Kenny Omega. Moxley, of course, getting very frustrated on the outside that they're not really going through it. Matt in particular seems more conflicted than Nick. And eventually Mox gets a bit frustrated, goes for a few paradigm shifts, but the books say no more. And they turn on Mox, they give him the double super kick and eventually... They just go full all in on their heel turn and give the two sweet and the hug to their compadres, the Good Brothers and Omega. What did you make of how the books turned and exactly what was it? Was it good storytelling? Yeah, I mean, at, at the time I was like kind of rolling my eyes. It's like, OK, this is kind of a, you know, a little bit of NXT. Why am I so violent, perhaps, with the melodrama? But I think, you know, after that, the week after that, they had uh, the Bucks versus Pac 
And that was an amazing match. And that was the first match where they were, you know, full-blown heels in AEW. And they, they, again, that match ruled and they were able to, I think, get that those characters uh, across very well, especially with the outfits, with the the dangliness, the dangly headbands, and then the, the sneakers and all that. And um, Take away the, uh, the tassels as well. They had the scissors out cutting off the tassels one by one and the like just before the match and they come out in all striking silver it is like a, a, a slight small reinvention yeah and, and the finish as well of that match which was uh pulling off phoenix's mask and mm-hmm. super kicking him in the face uh so yeah just full-blown jackass uh, bucks right there which is what they do best really as great as they are as faces i think they are so uh so good at being just complete asshole heels <laughs> that you want to see get beaten up if you want to see them to get beaten up i mean mox and kingston are the perfect team to do that because they are just straight up shit kickers you know no nonsense shit kickers so it's a great uh, blending of, of attitudes and styles in that point as well so and we get that in the next two weeks where, first of all, Mox and Kingston are nowhere to be seen, but eventually they come back on the scene and ram into the trailer of the Elite. And we're eventually going down the road of these two guys are going to be separated here from Kenny Omega soon enough and they're going to be going after the books. But before then, Kingston has a match with Michael Nakazawa. And um, again, like he, in, in his own words, he doesn't want any of this sports entertainment shit. And that's still pretty evident today. His character has been true to form the whole year. But he eventually gets to a point where you get Omega in the ring and Moxley and himself eventually got to, for lack of a better word, the EWR revenge, pilmanizing type injury they had to try to attempt with. <laughs> And yeah, John Collis gives in. He says, yes, and okay, I'll give you some match. What did you make of this? And do you think this was a little bit too hokey? Maybe a little bit, but... They've got him here. They've got Kenny Omega where they want him. Why not just, you know, break his ankle? Well, I guess because, you know, the wrestling can't happen. <laughs> they break his ankle. So, I mean, that's... I, I don't know. I can't really explain it. It's just it's one of the things you kind of have to shrug your shoulders about, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it may not have been great, but... Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's my best explanation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but they do. They get they get what they want from a K-Play point of view. Don Cass gives them the match yeah, next week. Yeah. And we're at least we're off the races in terms of Moxley and Kingston being a formidable duo going forward. And what did you make of the next week when Nakaza and Omega were going to be facing Kingston and uh, Moxley for the first time? I think, well, first of all, the, you know, my first impression was, okay, Nakazawa's going to die. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, he does die because they give him the violent crown. Uh, which is a really cool attack finisher, by the way. And then my second thought was afterwards when, you know, after they win and the Bucks and the Good Brothers attack them, like, you could see, okay, they're they're going to do Bucks versus Mox and Kingston. It's just a matter of making it official and, you know, getting them the, the right amount of wins and kind of building them up in the tag, up the tag rankings, get them the shot. And um, they would do that, you know, they would get a few more wins under their belts over the next couple of weeks. So that, that's where it led to, yeah. And, of course, we're going down the road now of, like you say, to, towards double or nothing. It's going to be paired off now with the books taking on Kingston and Omega. How did you feel about the rest of the feud who we got there with the, with the instance with the, stealing the sneakers and so on? Was this a, a worthy feud for this particular um, particular match? If you're going to go after guys who are so obsessed with their sneakers, then you steal them. Like, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a natural part of the story. I mean, yeah, I mean, at that point, they had done all the stuff with, like, Mox and Kingston like wrecking their dressing room and you know smashing the truck into the their their uh, their trailer as well. So you kind of had like these you know multiple instances of Mox and Kingston wrecking or like ruining their experience you know backstage or or outside of the ring. And I think stealing the shoes was again another bit of part of that. Um, it was just you know 
was it you know the the crazy blood feud that you know CM Punk and MJF was? No, no, it wasn't. But if you're you're going up against you know the Bucks who are these very arrogant jerks, then there's not necessarily a, a blood feud type of thing here. I think it's more of again wrestlers versus the cocky sports entertainers here. So do you think? AEW missed a trick by not giving Kingston and Omega a true one-on-one match because when this feud started to develop back in early April I always assumed that maybe Omega would have his first challenger in Kingston but that wasn't the pass you think that was a missed opportunity maybe I mean we didn't get too many Omega singles matches at that point I don't believe uh we had a couple of ones you know Phoenix and and Seidel on TV but I don't know I think it I think he got the point across with uh, the Nakazawa tag I think because at that point, I mean, you have to also build up Omega and his next challenger for double or nothing with the world title, which wasn't going to be Eddie Kingston or Moxley. It was going to be uh, Pac and Orange Cassidy. So I think beating Eddie in the singles match, you know, it would have been a fun match, but I don't know if it would have really uh, served a real purpose overall, I don't think, for the Bucks feud, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And the match takes place, of course, in May 20th in a really, really hot crowd because this is the first crowd back for AEW in over roughly, what, 13 months, 14 months? And you can see here, while the crowd did start off with a uh, Hangman and Brian Cage having the belt, this for me was when re the pay-per-view really kicked in and it was the second match on the card. And how do you feel this moment ranks in terms of all-time sort of feel-good moments in pro wrestling? Yeah, I'd say it's it's pretty up there, uh, given the recent time, recent years, because remember, this was the first uh, AEW show that had a full crowd since the pandemic began, which was, you know, well over a year at that point. And, you know, seeing Mox and Kingston come out and, you know, Wild Thing is playing and they're going through the crowd and everyone's going nuts and, you know, Mox is, you know smashing you know a beer over his head or whatever and you know eddie kingston's just going come on yeah like it felt like a real cathartic moment for sure like okay we've been through some real dark times and there's been you know empty arenas for for many 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 months and limited crowds for many 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 months but you know everyone's here now and we're gonna have a party we're gonna have a lot of fun and just you know seeing mox and kingston come out for that entrance it felt really invigorating and really exciting and rejuvenating for, I think, a lot of people, myself included. And I think this is, comes in a week where WWE have, they've suggested they can script these kind of moments better than anyone. Do you feel that this is something like so organic that you can never really replicate? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you can't just, I mean, you could, but you can't just hold up a sign that says cheer while the guy comes out, you know? I mean, <laughs> you can't do that. It has to come organically. And sure, you can hit the... Uh, the, the cheer.mp3 button as well, but, you know, nothing beats hearing a music hit and, and the crowd just roaring and going nuts and seeing people go nuts and, you know, jumping up and down and, you know, shaking their hands over their head and whatnot. Like, you can't replicate that as best as you might might think you can. So, yeah, for all the talk of, of moments and we make moments and we make movies and all that, like, that's that's a real moment. That's, that's an honest-to-goodness emotion from people who are so excited to see their favorite wrestlers again in, in person. Oh, it was a special moment indeed. I feel that the crowd were really amped up as soon as Wild Thing hit. And this again, this is only a recent team change for John Moxley. And like he feeds off them, the crowd feed off these two guys. And the place is electric and the perfect people to foil all this are the young books. The match itself was a particularly 
really excellent professional wrestling belt. What were your thoughts on that and what were your moments that you really feel stuck out for you as an all-time and a match of the year? Because this one came in 31 on the Voices of Wrestling's um, match of the year. Do you think this was a, a fair place for it on the card? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I, I wouldn't say it's it's the best tag team match of the year. I think, uh, you know, Bucks, Lucha Brothers, you know, later that year in the cage, I think was, was better than that. And that may be live bias on my own part because I was there. I was there alive. <laughs> yeah, number one, I was I was there for that. But but no, this is still an amazing match. And again, it's it's the combination of cocky, asshole, super obnoxious, flashy young Bucks versus these you know, hoodlum brawlers, for lack of a better term, you know, these guys who are just here to kick your ass, no, no, no bones about it. And the crowd just being firmly on Mox and Eddie Kingston's side. And, and especially Eddie, who, you know, at that point, he was in AEW and he hadn't been in front of a full crowd yet. He came to AEW during the pandemic, but just seeing that crowd living and dying for Eddie Kingston to, you know, make the hot tag or, or be the hot tag or whatever, and just cheering him on wholeheartedly that you can't not love that stuff. You know, it just, it fills your heart with, with joy and the crowd is ex- exploding and, and living and dying for these, these guys. Uh, it helps make a, it helps elevate the match, you know, even, even more than the in reaction does, I think for sure. And you mentioned Eddie Kingston there. Like I always compare him to Mick Foley in terms of how he is probably like the, you know, the real people's champion of this particular area. The fans love him. And it, like you mentioned, he had never been in front of a live AEW crowd at this point. What are your opinions of Eddie Kingston in general? Do you feel he's a guy who is like, he's really excelled now since we come back to live crowds? Oh yeah, definitely. Because Eddie is very much, Mick Foley's a great comp because Eddie is not a, a technical wunderkind by any stretch of the imagination. He is, again, he is he's the more of the brawler, more of the hard-hitting type. So you're not going to get, you know, five-star technical Brian Danielson classics out of the guy. But you will get some amazing matches out of him because of that crow connection, because of that that fiery spirit and that never-say-die attitude. And, and people can attach to that. And they can attach to a guy who will chop as hard as he can, who will punch as hard as he can, who will larry as hard as he can and, and backdrop as hard as he can to win a match. And he'll, he'll fight through the pain and he'll... He'll fight their injuries just to win, and you want him to win because he's like you. He's kind of on your level. He's not some superhero. He's not some guy who lives in a big mansion. He's not, you know, wearing these flashy outfits like the Bucks or whatever. No, he's wearing like a a Chico's Bale Bonds jersey from the Bad News Bears, right? And <laughs> and you know he's and he's wearing like these Eastbound and Down jerseys or whatever. Like he's a, a, a down home kind of guy, and. Those are the ones who are always, I think, the most relatable to the normal, the normal people, the, the civilians. I think, for lack of a better term. So, um, yeah, I've I've been so much, very much in love with Eddie Kingston in, in his in AEW run, and seeing him with these crowds who have just fallen in love with him and and you know cheered him on so much throughout all his feuds. It's been it's been really cool to see. But he really deserves it, I think, after his his career and, and what he's been through through his life. Oh, he's, he's so relatable. He's so sympathetic. You, you feel like you just you can't help but root for the guy. He is just that guy that like and he, he compliments John Moxie really well. They are like I always kind of think they're like a lethal weapons or a duo, you know, like with uh, like Mel Gibson and uh, Danny Glover and stuff. There are two Mel Gibsons. There's no Danny Glover here whatsoever. <laughs> the two of them are just balls to the wall, unpredictable. And there's no one really reeling them in despite really their 
best efforts of each other trying to read each other and they just really encourage each other further but like the match itself has some really good spots you've got like the the sleeper into the 450 the melter drivers the last minute pin breaks after the paradigm shift there was a whirlwind of near falls really throughout this match and like i particularly I couldn't get enough of this. It was just wasn't. It didn't overstay its welcome. It didn't, you know, wasn't really, you know, too, you know, too short that you didn't enjoy it. I thought this was really an appropriate four star plus match. If you were going to give this a score at the end of the day, what would the score you'd give it? Uh, I think I give it four and a half. Uh, last year, that's kind of what I would do. Again, not perfect match. I think the ending is kind of the weakest part because uh, they give Mox the. Um, the four BTE triggers, and I think Matt forgot he's the legal man. So there's like those two or three seconds where Nick's like, Matt, 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 cover him, cover him, cover him. And Matt's like, oh shit, like, like right. And he has to run over <laughs> and, and pin him. So that does kind of leave it on a, not not a sour note, but kind of a deflating moment a little bit. But but no, overall, again, the crowd, the the big spots, like again, yeah, you said the um, the muscle driver on the, the ramp, the, the 450. Uh, the Dior's Day device with the shoes was a was an incredible yes. moment. Uh, of course, the elite hunter Frankie Gazarian doing his uh, make way for Willie dive onto the uh, the Good Brothers <laughs> there. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it's again it's one of those matches where the crowd is just as big a part of it, and seeing them you know go crazy for these these cool spots and these these near falls. It's that's what really makes wrestling wrestling, I think. And you know without them, you're lacking something really serious. So um, yeah, this was a great match for sure. And the chemistry between Moxley and Kingston and the Young Bucks, I think while they're completely different styles, obviously like you've got really more brawlers and more high flyers, the two of them really mix well. The two teams really mix well with each other. They they perform really apparently and there's, there's not much, again, except for probably the finish where the timing is really a bit off. Everything really seems to really go smoothly and the, the crowd seems to eat this up from beginning to from beginning to end. And at the end of the day, like this is all you really want from professional wrestling. You want to be sit there and you want to have absolute pure enjoyment for the best part of, I think this worked about 25 minutes and it was a really good pay-per-view and this match really was one of the sort of strong focal points in that, would you agree? Oh yeah, this this match was um, either you know the best or one of the best matches on that show, and that was a good show overall. You had you know again uh, Hangman and Cage was a great opener, and uh, uh, D versus Riho in the pre-show was good. Um, the three-way for the world title was really good. So yeah, all in all, it was a, a pretty good show. But uh, this is one of the real highlights, uh, absolutely. Were you afraid at the time? I know I was a little bit. It was like this could all be taken away from us again in terms of crowds and you know fan reaction, like because the pandemic yeah. is such an unpredictable beast that like you never knew what was going to be changing from like you know, one week to the next. So was this the point of like let's get our best foot out here for what we can until you know we probably can't do it in a few months' time. Now thankfully that didn't come to pass. But do you think they really put their best foot forward here and said, listen, we're going to go all out here? no pun intended, to try and obviously entertain the fans as best we can while we have them. Oh, yeah, I think anyone in that position who knows, okay, we got this full crowd again, let's go, uh, not to, again, all out, let's go all out here. Uh, I think anyone in that position would do their best to give the fans their, you know, 100%. And because, yeah, again, at that time, the vaccines were, you know, had been rolled out and they were kind of the early stages of, okay, you take your mask off, but... We've seen with variants, they've, they've come back and, and kind of muck things up again. And uh, it's kind of been tricky from there. But but at that point, it was very much one of those things where, again, it was very a very cathartic, okay, we can breathe a little bit easier now because it's not as bad as it was you know, six months or a year before. Um, so let's 
make the most of this right now. Whatever comes in the future, we'll deal with it. But for right now, let's just go balls to the wall. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a really amazing match and an amazing show. I really enjoyed it. And we usually cap off today's show and other shows with the guests best John Moxley moment. So, Andrew, what's your favorite Dean Ambrose, John Moxley moment, and why is it so special to you? Oh, man. I um, think I'd have to go with that first match in New Japan against Juice, just because it felt like, okay, this guy is free in, in the truest sense of the word. And he even, he even said later on in interviews, like, I was out there and there was no one in my ear yelling at me to do this and do that. It was like, no, just go out there and wrestle. And I wrestled. So seeing that and seeing what Moxley was capable of in a wrestling ring without being hampered down by something or by restrictions, that to me was like a really awesome moment to see him. And it was it was like a reassuring moment, too. Like, OK, things are going to be OK with John Moxley you know, going forward. It's not going to be. You know, one of those guys who leaves WWE and he's not the same anymore. He can't get, you know, in the swing of things. No, he's in the swing of things, you know, in, in a very big way. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of moments to choose from, but that's one that comes to mind, I think, first and foremost for me. Mm, it was definitely a really pivotal moment in the career of John Moxley where we as fans got to see him as a completely physically as a difference to our competitor and the trunks and the music. And he then, of course... He had an absolutely amazing match. And I think the one thing we can always say about the guy, he's he's passionate about professional wrestling. He's happy when he's in there. And I think he obviously wasn't happy, you know, six months prior to that. And it's great to see him not only happy then, but continue to be happy and enjoy himself as, as go forward, where he's in an AEW ring or in a 500-seater, you know, small card where he's fighting the Jimmy Jacobs or he's taking on a Darby Allen on a show. And it's it's great to see him have these sort of variety of matches on a big stage and on a small stage and give it 100% each time. I think that's why I particularly appreciate him so much more himself because he, he doesn't phone it in at any particular stage. No, no, he always gives his, his all. You know, he bleeds his all for sure. I mean, that guy just cannot stop gushing blood, it seems, in every big match he's in. But uh, that's why we love him. God love him for it. You know, he's, he's great at bleeding and uh, he always gives the fans what they want, which is uh, violence and more violence. So, yeah, he, he's the best. Moxley's the best, and I wish something but, but the best for him, however long he has his, in his career left, which is hopefully he's a very long time. Oh, hopefully so, hopefully so. And Andrew, thank you so much for coming today. It was an absolute treat to get to talk to you, personally for me, because I'm such a huge fan of your show. But where can people reach you? What would you like to plug? This is your moment to sort of get all off your chest. First of all, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun being on your show, and I do appreciate the kind words about my show. I, good good handshakes here between the two of us here for this uh, Mutual <laughs> Appreciation Society. Um, but yeah, you can, my show is Music of the Met. It is a wrestling music podcast. Uh, shows come out every other Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual haunts and, and places there. Um, it's part of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network, and you can find all of my stuff on Voices of Wrestling at VoicesOfWrestling.com. I've also written a lot of stuff for the site over the years as well. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, oh, uh, at Andrew T. Rich on Twitter, at Music of the Mat on Twitter as well. So there you go. Mm, and the T, the T stands for Team Music. At least that's what I like to assume anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but no, thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And, and that brings us to the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thank you to Andrew for, of course, taking the time to come and chat to us about John Moxley and Double or Nothing. And of course, if you want to hit up the show, we are at Mox Podcast on Twitter. Of course, you can hit me up directly at Awesome Joe. Always love to chat about pro wrestling, good, bad, or indifferent. And of course, we will see you next week. Take care, guys. Have a good day.